We're continuing in our series in the book of Acts called Our Hearts Burn Within. And from this point on in the book of Acts, the rest of the book and the rest of our time will be dominated by the story of Paul. Paul, who was the great villain of Christianity, who is then converted and has become what many argue the greatest leader in the Christian movement and could also be argued to be the greatest leader in movement history. And the question we need to ask, especially when you come upon someone like Paul, I mean, his, his words in the Bible, he, he wrote half of the New Testament and his words are impacting and changing cultures around the world today. And you look at his accomplishments and you've got to ask, with a man like Paul, how does he view his life? How does he view his life? And when we ask that question, he answers it for us in 2 Timothy where he says, I view my life as being poured out as a drink offering. Meaning he's viewing his life as like a living sacrifice. We know this because he is beaten. Throughout his life, he is imprisoned. He is shipwrecked multiple times. He is in cold, sickness close to death, hunger and thirst. And in our story today, he is stoned close to death. Not from like the smoking kind, but where in that time you wanted to kill somebody, you threw stones at them. And he's doing work in a city and they they begin to throw stones at him and they think he's dead and his friends gather around him and then he opens his eyes and he stands up and he walks right back into the city. And then from then on, he almost immediately, he takes a 50 mile journey to another city to do work there and then he returns back to the city that stoned him to continue to do work and to encourage those who believed. This is a man who has endured much and we, we okay, so why? What is his motivation? I mean, we know he's saying he's, his life is being poured out as a drink offering, but why would he do that? If we understand Christianity, we know Paul is in. Eternity has been secured for him. Christ will never leave him or forsake him. So what is his motivation? And we could call his motivation Christian moxie. In fact, Paul, from his other writings... He says things like this. He sees his life, bless you, he sees his life as more joyful than ours because of the hardships that he's enduring. Now, okay, what, what does that mean? Well, his aim is the gospel message to be, to be spread all throughout the world around him. And he's enduring much for that. But then what happens is, by doing this, he becomes completely reliant on Christ to endure whatever is thrown at him. And now, because he is so connected to Christ, he has all of the resources of heaven, like joy, peace, and strength at his disposal. So, simply put, enter into hardships for the sake of Christ, and you will have more joy because of it, because you'll have more of him, because you have to depend on him. It's like you're putting yourself in the situation. You could think of parents who are missionaries who take their family 
across the world, and they have to, their whole family has to rely on Christ to do the work. And you say, okay, well, that sounds great. Well, we can do the same thing. All you have to do in your life is simply ask, what is God's will for my family? Like, what would it look like for your life to be poured out as a drink offering? And then to trust that it's going to bring more joy if you do that. And the answer simply is dream big. Create in that a need for Christ, for him, for his kingdom. And with your career, with your endeavors, devote to him and see your life being poured out as a drink offering. And then you will have the kind of access to heaven uh, that Paul talks about um, because of Christ, but because of your willingness to endure the will of God. All right, so here's where we're going today. We're going to look at the longings that we have. We're going to look at idolatry, and then we're going to look at the tribulations we go through and how they're all connected. And at the end, we're going to do a Q&A like we've been doing for the last couple months. The number on the screen is going to be different this week, so if you try to text me, it won't work. Make sure you note that it's a different number. All right, this is God's word to us from Acts 14. It says, now, now in Lystra, there was a man sitting whom could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices in Lyconian. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good, with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city, he had made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations... We must inherit the kingdom of God. Our first point is longings. Longings, I mean, these are deep longings. They are insatiable cravings for more. A longing is something, it's an insatiable craving for more that is also far off and out of reach. 
but you long for it anyways, though it's out of reach. It's, it's longing for something that's strangely unknown to you. You know deep down that you want something and that you don't have it, but you don't even know what it is. The Germans have three words that would describe what appears to me this human longing that many, almost all people, all people have. And the Germans come up with great words to describe feelings that no one really would think to come up with. Like, if you're walking alone in the forest, they have a word for that. And here are the three words. The first word is Fernve, which means farsickness. Or it's a longing for far-off places. Or in other words, there's a hidden treasure somewhere out there, and you know it deep down, so you got to go and find it. The second word is heimweh, which means homesickness. It's a longing for home, and if you, and it has feelings of nostalgia with it, but if you think about it spiritually, it's a spiritual nostalgia, or it's a longing for Eden, for a home that you remember that you have never yet been to. It's like God has put the desire for Eden in us. And then the last word is zenzut, which means a longing for I know not what. Put all these words together, and this is what I believe the human experience of longing is. It's this deep longing within you for home that you've never been to. And you're ready to take an adventure, you're ready to take a risk, you're ready to, you're desperate to go out and find whatever it is. You just know it's out there. It's like an impulse. Like a woman who's pregnant, who is about to give birth, you tell her to stop pushing, she will not stop. She can't help it. It's just something in her. She knows it's time. And there's something in you. And it's time to go and seek. And that's what we find in our story today. And if you look all the way back to the beginning of humanity, humanity has been telling stories trying to make sense of this longing. All the way back in the beginning. Uh, this is what these ancient mythologies are. Carl Jung, who is a psychologist, he says that we have something in us in humanity called the collective unconscious. And what we're doing is we're trying to make sense of the world by telling these mythologies to help us make sense of our lives. And then another guy comes along named uh, Joseph Campbell, and he writes this book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And what he does is he takes all the mythologies that have ever been written, well, that we know of, and he finds a common thread. And he says, this is what the hero's journey is. Now, these two men are not Christians, but they have tapped into the longing of humanity. And what we see in our story is a whole city who has an insatiable craving for more, and then all of a sudden, Paul and Barnabas come on the scene, and this miracle is performed, and they assume that this must be Zeus and Hermes, these Greek gods that have come down in their city. Now, there's a backstory to why they are assuming this is Zeus and Hermes. There's an ancient story, a legend, that Zeus and Hermes have come down into a city long ago, and they ask for the hospitality among people. And they were denied by every household. 1,000 households denied them until they came to an elderly peasant couple that welcomed them in. 
And then Zeus and Hermes blessed this couple and brought a flood upon these thousands of households, wiping them out. And when they saw Paul and Barnabas, they said, oh my gosh, it's happening again. This miracle has just been performed. We better do something about this. We better start worshiping so it doesn't happen to us. Now, we hear this story and we think, how gullible for them to just start worshiping these men as if they're gods who have come down. But you know what's ironic? They would look at us today and they would call us gullible. And here's why. We live in what's called a secular age. And a secular age says that this is all that there is. There is nothing beyond this. We die and we're done. Nothing's left after this. Now, here's my question. What if there is a God? And what if God has put something in us and the longings that we have within us for more are really a longing that he has put there for us to seek him out, to search out Eden? But we deny him. We suppress the truth. What happens to us? Well, if God and a world with him is our goal, our telos, our end, the end of our journey, that means that's our very purpose in life. The meaning in life is God. The meaning in life is to find our home that we're made for. And if we deny that there's a God, then we're denying there is any meaning or purpose in our life. And so the ancients would look at us and say, of course you're depressed. You've denied that there's any meaning or purpose or end to your life. There's no goal. This is why we cry tears like this. In fact, there is an epidemic happening and it's depression. And it's gotten so bad that it leads to many suicides, more so than any other age that there has been. And it's puzzling until you think about it this way. If there is a God and our age denies his existence, we've lost meaning. We've lost purpose. Life gets hard. What's the point? So it leads to this horrible depression that is just wreaking havoc on our society. And so the ancients would look at us and they would say, you fools, of course you're depressed. Now, we could look at what they do and we could say, well, it's pretty foolish for them to, to think that this is Zeus and Hermes. But here would be what I would say to our secular culture. At least they're looking. And then I would say to our secular culture, and by the way, don't think that the secular culture has not impacted you far more than you realize. We would then, here's what I would say to the secular culture. Are you sure that you don't have a God? Because if you say there is no God and there is a longing within us for God, then we have to find a way to pacify that need to find something to worship. So uh, Sigmund Freud, he, he kind of pokes fun at Christians and he says religion is childlike and it's immature. But if you look at what we do, when we deny God, we go to idols like they are pacifiers that we are sucking on like infants to try to fulfill the longings that we have deep within us. And this is our second point, idolatry. In our story, the people in that city mistake 
Barnabas and Paul for Zeus and Hermes. For God's coming down. And Paul says to them, I have come to bring good news that you should turn from these vain or worthless things. Now, the word vain or worthless is associated with the word idolatry. An idol is anything that is empty and it's deceptive because it promises you a lot, but it very rarely delivers anything for you. And if it does deliver anything for you, it's always temporary. And an idol is something that's dead and dead things can't give you life. They only rob life from you. And we, we think about idols and then we say the same thing for us today that we have them because an idol is anything that you love as ultimate. There's a philosophical fiction writer who's not a Christian and it's so funny that he says this. His name is David Foster Wallace. He says that we all worship something. The only choice we have in the matter is what will we worship? This is a man who is a secularist. Now, what is worship? It's anything that you trust will satisfy the deep longing in you. So this, this is fun. So if you look through the cities throughout the world, you will not find in the Western world statues of idols but you will find moving statues. You will find people walking around that represent the God that they worship. So if you go to Miami and you walk Ocean Drive, you will find the cult of beauty. And there you will find people walking around, walking Ocean Drive, peacocking around. In other words, please look at me. My feathers are out. Look how beautiful I am. And there is a deep longing within them for you to gaze upon them and admire the beauty that they have. And they'll do whatever it is that they can to get you to notice them or look at them. Then you have in New York a desire for success. The God of success reigns in New York. Success at all costs. In fact, what you will find is that often people at the end of their life who have chased success, they'll look back at all that they have achieved and they'll think, it's all been wasted. I chased after something that would never deliver for me. And they have so many regrets for doing it. If you go to LA, you have the God of fame. There's a recent documentary that came out about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now, this is a man who could be called the greatest bodybuilder there ever has been. He was a highly successful actor and eventually became the governor of California. And he's not even from the United States, but he's achieved so much. And you ask, what has driven this man to do all that he's done? Well, in the documentary, we get a hint. When he wants to become an actor, somebody contacts him, a friend calls another acting coach, and the acting coach calls him and says, hey, Arnold, I heard that you want to get into acting. And he says, no, I don't want to be an actor. I want to be a star. And that's it. That's the drive. That's the desire. Now, let's talk about us. In our area, there is a king, and his name is Comfort. Comfort at all costs. And here's what we do. We work not to save money so we can go and live an exciting life. 
We work not because we enjoy work, but we work so we could get a comfortable life. And how, how do we measure a comfortable life? Well, we look at everyone around us and we look at what their status is. This is called keeping up the Joneses. And we just want to be just above them. And if we could just be just above them, then we could reach the comfortable life. And we could just lock up in our homes and make it nice and cool and just feel good in there and be comfortable. And, it, and also, if you want to be comfortable, well, you have to protect yourself from people because people are hard work. People require sacrifice. Love requires sacrifice. There's a lot of people moving to our area right now. And if you will talk to them, the ones who've been here for six months or so, they will tell you that everybody seems so friendly. All the neighbors are friendly, but the door is always shut. They're never invited in. And it's because we value comfort over love and over sacrifice. And that's why there's a problem of loneliness in our area. And also, if you have the God of comfort, you won't take a risk. Which means you will not ever take a risk for building the kingdom of God. And if you never take a risk for building the kingdom of God, then, well, maybe you never really need God. Maybe you never really need Christ. So you never have to rely on him or depend on him. In fact, God is a little bit uncomfortable. He keeps having these truths that you can't bend, but you have to bend to them. So you better keep God at a distance. And yeah, sure, you could call yourself a Christian, but, you know, don't be one of the weird ones who go all in. And you see what's just happened? You are controlled by comfort, and you've lost so much from it. Every idol is there because you think it will make you happy. But in the end, what do they do to you? They make you weak, joyless, and dead because they are dead. If you go to something that is not eternal, it will give you temporary life. But if you go to something that is eternal, it will give you eternal life. All right. So now we ask, what does any of this have to do with hardships? And the answer, it has everything to do with it. Paul, our last verse that we read, says, you must enter the kingdom of God by tribulations. Now, if you're someone who reads the Bible, you're thinking, wait a minute. I thought we entered the kingdom of God by grace alone, and faith alone, and Christ alone. And you're right. So what does Paul mean by this? What he means is that Hardships do not save you, but they are a key part of your faith. They don't save you, but they're a key part of your faith. Why? Because hardships will humble you. There's a humbling happening right now. Hardships will, will make you depend on something outside of you, humble you. To reach for something beyond. Now, here's the warning. Like I said earlier, don't think you aren't impacted by a secular culture, even if you're a Christian. So, your life's been going really well, and all of a sudden a hardship comes at you. It's very easy in our culture, because we've been impacted by it, to say, Ah, oh, I knew it. 
there can't be a God. There's no way. Look at what's happening to me right now. If God was good, he'd never let this happen. If he was powerful, he'd stop this from happening. So I'm done. You could say that. Or what you could say is you could look at your life and you could look at the idols in your life and you could say, these are not enough for me to get through the suffering that I am now facing. I need something more beautiful, more powerful, more glorious and magnificent to get me through what I'm facing right now. And you see, what what has happened is now you're looking for something that is outside of this world. You've turned your desires not down, but all the way up. You've looked at everything this world has to offer you and you said, "Mm mm-mm, that is not it. I need something better. So you reach beyond. Now you can see that's how mythologies are formed. But then Paul, he says, I have brought this good news to you. To turn from vain and worthless idols that will never deliver for you. And turn to the one true God who has come. Who has truly come down into the earth. Paul's aim is the good news of Christ. The real thing he's saying has come. And what he's saying now, for you, as you face hardships, is that if you will depend on Christ, you will have all of the resources. You will have an arsenal of joy, peace, and strength, and love with you. Because Christ is with you and the spirit is in you, stirring those up in you. All other religions will will say something like this. Make sure you suffer well so that you get in. And and if you look at throughout history, all religions will find purpose in suffering except a secular age. But here's the problem with other religions is they say suffer well in order to get in. Christianity says you're already in. Grace, by grace you're in, by Christ you're in. So you're in, and then being in, you have access to all of the resources of joy, peace, and strength from heaven coming down to face what you face, and now you can face it head on. And you don't have to be stoic about it. You don't have to pretend like it's not happening to you. You can look intently, like right into the face of suffering, and know what you have at your disposal in Christ. That's a different way to suffer. C.S. Lewis was a man who was secular, who eventually became a Christian and became one of the most influential Christian writers in the modern age. But he was secular. And there's a moment, he had this long journey to faith, but there's a moment, a key moment for him when he was a professor and he was walking with one of his fellow professors, J.R.R. Tolkien, and they were talking. And Tolkien said to Lewis, you know, Lewis, you love mythologies. You know how they give you joy. You know they have, how they stir up your imagination and give you a sense of awe and wonder. He said, Christianity is the only myth that has become fact. And Christ is really the God, the true God, who has come down into our earth and into us. And think of it like this. Every story... 
the stuff that stirs at you, it's an echo of him. And every idol that humanity keeps running to, it's offering a shadow of something that he offers in full. He is the God who has come down and he comes down into the city of Miami. And in Miami, where they're so, they're just wanting to find beauty and they're wanting to be beautiful. He comes down, Christ comes down, and he says, I have something that I want to give you. And I want to clothe you with this robe of righteousness, this robe of beauty, this robe of perfection that I have lived this life to achieve. And now I've got it here, this cloak, and I'm going to give it to you and I'm going to clothe you with this beauty. That's what he offers to that city. To New York, he, he comes, he's the God of heaven who's come down into New York and he says, I see you working so hard for your kingdom and to make a name for yourself. He says, there is a greater kingdom and there is work to be done. And if you will join me in this work, you will be doing work that will echo on into eternity and will last. He said, right now you're building things that will be moth-eaten, that will fade into the dust but I'm offering you a kingdom and I'm asking you to come and build it with me. And it will echo on, it will live on. Everything you do here will echo into eternity. And then Jesus, the God of heaven, comes down into LA, the city of angels. And he sees their want for fame. And he says, I can offer you And you know you can trust him because he's died for you. And he says, I will give you the kind of approval, the kind of fame that you could only dream of. The Father in heaven will look down upon you and delight in you. And he will know that I have died for you and that you are his and he is yours and you are mine and I am yours, Jesus says to you. And this is the kind of thing that makes you famous in heaven. Like the angels are literally rejoicing every time someone comes to faith. Like, and, and it's, when I say fame, I want to be careful here, but it's, it's almost like it, it needs to be said because the kind of approval that you have now through faith is the kind of stuff where it's like the father, like there's a fame that you have. Like he's delighting in you like he's delighting in his child. Like that's a real kind of fame, not, not a, like a superficial fame, but it's something real. And then Jesus comes to our city. And he says to us, I have secured for you a home in my father's house. And it's a good home. It's cozy. The fire has been lit. The room is ready. The meal is laid out. And it awaits you. And that is what awaits you. But also, he says, but, but right now, you have some tribulations. Right now, you have some difficulties to walk through. And as you walk through them, I am with you. And I am your comforter. And he gives you the spirit as your comforter as well. He's the only one worthy of our worship. And he has come down. And he asked for our hospitality. And when he did, we arrested him. We gave him a crown of thorns. 
We, gave, we whipped him with a cat of nine tails that would grip and rip the flesh off of his back. And we gave him a cross to carry. And we gave him nails as his food and we gave him sour wine to drink. Now the question becomes, how will he respond? Will he be the kind of God who responds like Zeus and Hermes did in a story and bring a flood upon the people? And the answer is no, he is not that God. He is the God who took the flood on the cross. For all of our guilt, for all of our shame, for our unwant of him, for our rejection of him, uh, he is swallowed up by the flood of despair, of distress, of depression, of nothingness, of death and of hell. He's swallowed up by it all. No other God gives you that. No other idol will suffer for you like that. In fact, idols demand you to sacrifice for them. Without your sacrifices, they do not live. But he is the God who went down into the grave and rose up out of the grave. So he needs nothing from you, but he has everything to offer you. And if you go to him, he will not be vain or worthless, but he will spill over with life and he will give you that life as he rises from the grave and you cling to him as your only hope and the only fulfillment of your longing. And this means that because he drank the cup of suffering and of sacrifice, the cup that you drink is the cup of the strength of heaven. So it means that because he endured hardships and dies and rises, it means that every single time now when you endure hardship, you strangely get more life. If you'll go to him, you'll strangely get more joy and peace if you'll go to him and you'll get more life because he's the one who has died and risen. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you that you have sent your son we give you all honor, all glory, all praise. We look at these vain and worthless things in our life that we keep running to. And God, just give us a sense of, in our own life, disgust for having chased things that are less than you. But then also let us look at our city and the people in the city with mercy and uh, a sense of sadness, but also a sense of a mission that there's something that we should do about this. And then just fill us with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider, follow our social media at Grove Church PSL. And check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.